it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to the Coffee Cast with Cation and Rubin, powered by Behind the Racket, the podcast dedicated to looking at the top issues facing tennis and getting to know the players facing them. Visit BehindTheRacket.com for the latest stories, merch, as well as direct links to all of the latest podcasts. The Coffee Cast can also be found on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever you find your podcasts. Download the episodes and make sure to leave a review. Special thanks to our sponsor, New Balance. Visit their latest shoes and styles at newbalance.com and learn more about their program of giving back at hashtag NBGivesBack. And we want you to be a part of the conversation. Find me at NoahRubin33 or Mike at MikeCTennis on all forms of social media. You can also learn more at BehindTheRacket.com or MikeCTennis.com. And now... Well, back uh, in 2020, I guess this is our first podcast of, of the deck. I mean, what a big, momentous occasion here. Our first, no? Not our, Don't not, be that person. No. The, the whole new decade thing, I'm not on board with okay. that. So let's, yeah, let's you start, start the decade in 2021. <laughs> I understand. Um, but this, this is a, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a rebirth, um, especially for Noah, his bionic right arm, um, back in shape and, and back in action in Ann Arbor, where you are the two seed. Congratulations on that, my friend. Yeah, thanks so much. <laughs> I mean, people are asking me, are you in the tournament? I'm like, I'm actually seated, guys. Give me a break. <laughs> but uh, I, no, I have to admit, it, I pulled up the draw, and I was just like, I, I was looking for you uh, to be, frankly, like, unseated. In the qualies? Yes, and I was like, oh, my God, he's the two. What the hell? But then I yeah. remembered, yeah, not too many people are going to be there and then make the trip down to Melbourne to play qualies next right. week. Yeah. I actually don't know if there is any player besides myself. Who's the one seed? Bjorn and he's not going to Melbourne right so I think I am the only player here going to Melbourne which is fine you know everybody's like well what if you're in semis or finals okay if I'm in semis or finals that's more than fine yeah I I could use that first week of the year so I'm just happy to be here um you know I just couldn't do another year in Umea I love those people over there everybody's great but that's a long trip for the first tournament back in a few months um it's different though because you've done well there I mean, that's that's been a I special have. tournament for you. I have, but this year the draws are insane. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we're talking about the, you have to be seated, you have to be top 100 in the world at this point, or 110 in the world. So it's definitely a different feel. Again, I, besides being absolutely freezing, which I'm used to for the past couple of weeks in New York, um, it's, it's a great place. The indoor center is really nice here. Um, I just want to hit tennis balls and get into the competitive spirit. It has nothing to do with anything else. And I'm just excited. I really am. And I think I just need a little extra time to be in the States and have that comfort before going to Australia. Well, I'm pretty excited to head down under myself. I actually leave on Friday to get down there, and I'll be covering qualies for the world feed at the Australian Open. Uh, hopefully, uh, get to do one of your matches, maybe. Um, if, you, if, you, if you maybe get a, a draw against an Australian. Um, you know, I Listen, if we could somehow find a way, Noah Rubin versus... Former University of Illinois star, uh, likely wild card into qualies, Alex Vukic. 
I mean, that would just be right in my wheelhouse. I would just, yeah, that's just, that's too good for you. That's too easy, though. I mean, that would just be ideal. Um, But the other reason (laughs) I'm pretty excited here is um, this week we had the opportunity to talk with somebody who's been around the sport a long time, John Wertheim, a longtime Sports Illustrated uh, tennis channel commentator, writer, um, uh, just talk about some of the aspects of the sport um, that we talk about and how they're viewed on a more global, bigger scale within media. And here's our conversation with John Wertheim. Well, he's been on, let's see, I'm going to try to make sure I get everything right here. Uh, obviously, Sports Illustrated writer for 20 years-ish, uh, as, as well as doing <laughs> tennis and MMA, which I always find to be fascinating. Um, he's been on Tennis Channel for several years as well. Also a CBS 60 Minutes correspondent, John Wertheim. Thank you so much for taking some time for us today before the Australian Open. Pleasure. Good to, good to be here. Tennis, tennis and MMA are just basically the same sport. <laughs> one, uh, one, one with a racket and one not. <laughs> Sometimes I wish they were the same sport, though. <laughs> Well, John, we, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about media. Um, both Noah and I have obviously different perspectives on, on media and, and how they cover players outside of the top 50. Um, you, you obviously have, have come into this world more so starting with Sports Illustrated than expanding into Tennis Channel. Um, if, if you can, for, for people who might not know, just kind of explore how your growth has, has developed over the last several years and how you serve multiple audiences with both Sports Illustrated, your work there, as well as with Tennis Channel. Oh, man. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they sort of sometimes they work well together. Sometimes it's just two separate silos. Um, tennis is the, the, the sport I love the most, and uh, I've sort of been a generalist at sports illustrated for for many years but tennis is kind of the one sport that um i probably gravitated to more than others and yeah i mean you know sports illustrated you're dealing with a national magazine and maybe you sneak in a couple times a year a a q a with roger fetter or there's an amazing australian open that you can write off of when better nadal and the williams sisters play in the final weekend but tennis is very much sort of a, a niche sport and, uh, you know, I, just kind of the reality. Um, with Tennis Channel, it's obviously the exact opposite. People are there because they love tennis. You can go deeper. It's not just Roger, Novak, Serena, and, uh, the, you know, the, the, what I can call the big four. Um, so it's a, much, it's a much different drill. The audience is coming in with a different level of knowledge and you know, I mean, I, I do. I mean, I guess I can say this now. I'm working on a Nadal piece for 60 Minutes, mm. and you sort of work on it with the assumption that people may not have heard of him. So you have to say <laughs> who who Uncle Tony is and what Mallorca is, and the Davis Cup is a team competition as opposed to the majors. Um, Sports Illustrated is sort of the next tier down. You don't necessarily have to explain the Davis Cup as a team competition and not one of the four majors, but you're still. It's very much for the casual general sports fan. And Tennis Channel, obviously, you can delve delve much deeper, and you don't have to explain that he was a, a lefty turned, you know, a righty turned into a lefty. And um, so it's it's just kind of different levels of, uh, of of assumptions of the audience. You know, as coming from a tennis player, I'm so curious what the overall mentality and theme is. I'm talking on the Sports Illustrated, uh, Sports Illustrated side of things. What's the overall theme when tennis is brought up in a conversation? I mean, what is the excitement level? Because I've always had the issue that, you know, I, I get excited when I see Sports Illustrated articles coming out about tennis. 
any talk, but what is the overall theme when it comes to it? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I think some of it is sort of where, where does tennis fit into the sports conversation? And at least in the U S it's, it's not what it was in the seventies and eighties and even the nineties. You're not going to have, you know, we, you have courier Agassi, Sampras Chang. I mean, you, you're, that's not going to be the case anymore. So some of this is just level setting. Look, this is a global sport. Now the, the Connors McEnroe days when half the top 10 was American, that doesn't exist. It doesn't exist anywhere it doesn't exist for any country it's not going to ever exist again but the flip side of that is maybe second only to soccer this is an international global sport and there's a real virtue in that <laughs> and going back for, to you describing that you know the whole idea of nadal righty turned to lefty and all these things that you have to preface it with i've just recently understood that people don't know who roger federer is in conversation <laughs> a little more than I even knew. So how much does that affect the pieces you're writing for Sports Illustrated such that you really, you have to preface everything? I mean, does that take away from the feel? You know, I mean, I think some of it is sort of letting people in on the secrets that the three of us know, right? Because this mm. is a pretty awesome sport, and these are great men and women. And, you know, you, you don't have to sell Marshawn Lynch, right? You, you don't have to sell anyone <laughs> on, on Lamar. You know, here's uh, – whatever the Heisman Trophy winner is you don't have to sort of sell me on that some of this is almost a sales job of like here's why you need to care about Naomi Osaka um but I also feel like you, you know it's it's a star-driven sport and the stars of tennis are always going to be popular and people should care and, and do care to, to me it's it's sort of the next level where if, if you think people don't know who Roger Federer is, imagine the, the man on the street and telling him who Dominic Thiem is. Mm. <laughs> so some of it is, you know, explaining why these are interesting sports figures you should care about or why this was an amazing major and N Nadal beating Medvedev in five sets to win the U.S. Open is something you should care about. Um, but it also seems like tennis is more star-driven than ever. And if you're, if you're doing a story about a player outside the top five, they better have you know, the the, the storyline better be absolutely extraordinary. You know, the, the identical twins that play doubles, that probably qualifies. But if you're going to get a feature in, in Sports Illustrated, never mind 60 Minutes. I mean, if you're going to get a feature in Sports Illustrated on the number eight guy, he better, you know, have, have been an astronaut. In, in <laughs> it's, the, the backstory threshold is, is very, very high right now. One thing I've always really enjoyed about your coverage, um, and it's it's come in, uh, I, I guess, maybe something you might say is more of a side piece for you, your mailbag, um, the podcast you did over the last couple of years, um, exploring some of those stories that are not going to be part of the necessarily the mainstream. Um, why has that been important to you to maybe um, bring to light some of those stories that a, a more of a mainstream audience might not have heard about? I mean, some of it is, I mean, the, the mailbag I started maybe 20 years ago, mm -hmm. and it was just when this new thing called the internet came up, and I think we should do a tennis column, and someone's like, yeah, I don't care if you don't have <laughs> time on it. Um, I, I love the mailbag because it's real hardcore tennis fans, and it gives me a sense of sort of what people are talking about and what's important and where people stand on issues. Um, it can be very inside baseball, so it's really a tennis audience. I mean, my you know, but my mom's not going to have heard of nine out of ten names, and she has no opinions about whether Sasha Zverev needs a new coach and whether or not, uh, you know, the Washington, D.C. events should switch weeks. Um, 
but it's it's important to me because it's really sort of these are the hardcore tennis fans. This is what they care about. And like you said, I mean, I you know whatever. I, I love Roger and Rafa as much as the next guy, but there's a whole sport. There's a whole court culture. One of the reasons they're as good as they are is because there are 126 other players in the draw who are trying to win that tournament. So some of it also is trying to balance. You, you don't need to come to me to hear about Serena Williams. It's more about having that next level down discussion. And, you know, what, what do we really think about Ali risks, you know, 2020 is, is almost a more important discussion point to me than who's the best of all time, Roger Rafa or Nova. Right. Well, how, how do we get to that point though, where we're having that discussion about Ali risk? Um, on, on a more uh, national level. I, I think it's one thing on the international level where it is such an international global sport. How do we get to that point where, where more people are talking about Ali Risk's 2020? Um, how, how do we get to that point here in the States? That is a, uh, that is a great question. I don't <laughs> the million-dollar question. Do we want to go down this route? I mean, I, you know, I, someone sent me the other day that the USTA's finances, and the U.S. Open is this amazing two-week sporting event that generates more revenue than most professional teams will generate in an entire season um you know i mean it's it's kind of like the, the great uh, everyone sort of wants to wants to suckle at the usta and, and they see these bottom line figures and say how come the courts in topeka need repaving and everybody sort of sees these figures but it would be nice if from an american perspective there were a bit more of a, of a marketing effort and it's, it's a star driven sport. I get it. When you have your posters for the U S open and you're selling sponsorships and tickets, you want Serena and Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal and Sonia Kennan. And, you know, even Francis are probably a tougher sell, but it does seem as though the players can do their own publicity. Their management groups can help, but really you need what the NBA has, which is a centralized sports, sports league that helps spread the word mm. and um you know it's it's I, I i sort of get it we all get the economics i mean a lot of these comparisons to other sports are you know the and nfl does 15 billion dollars in revenue it's not really an apples and to orange comparison to compare their wages and uh their salary structures to tennis but it would be nice if if the USTA did more to spread the word on, on some of these players. Again, I mean, you, you brought this up briefly, but as a player, I mean, talking to somebody that's been in this in this field of kind of marketing to a certain extent, what can we do more as the player? Because I've always thought that we aren't doing enough. I mean, we can put it off on the organization or federations to say you guys have to step up, which they do. But as the players, how are we not using our platform more? Is that an issue? Yeah, I mean, I think players, you know, and obviously, uh, you know, some players would be more receptive to this than others. I mean, to some athletes, and this isn't unique to tennis. I mean, some athletes say, listen, I'm here to put the ball in the hoop, and I don't care about interviews. I don't care about my social media platform. Others see themselves sort of as a more 360-degree business. But I think for, you know, you're, you're a great example, Noah. I mean, obviously, some players are, are better on social media than others. I think some of it is what what do you want out of this sport? Is this just a matter of ranking points and trophies, or is this really a business? Is this really a bottom line enterprise? But I think players should really be encouraged to use the tools they have and, and tell their story. And part of the reason we connect with the stars is because of the winning they do and the fact that 
they're on our, you know, they're on TV for seven matches and not for, uh, you know, a 45 second clip, but they've also told a story. And I, I would say everyone comes from somewhere. Everyone's got a story to tell. Um, you know, I, I think if, if players saw the media and the marketing and the promotion as part of their job, that's probably going to sound distasteful to, to some of them. But I think for others, if, if that's part of your job, the same way working on your kick serve out wide is part of your job. I think that would help um, fans have more of a connection to some of these players. I'm intrigued. Yeah, I just, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, I just, I just always thought we don't have the luxury that other sports may have to just put that to the side. I, I always thought we just had to come together. You know, I'm just talking to those players and they're complaining about the money situation. I'm like, but you're also not doing anything to help the situation. So it's like, I don't know. It's a double-edged sword in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, and again, I mean, some players, we, we think about sports as being pure and you win and your ranking goes up and you, you lose and it doesn't go up and all this marketing stuff's bullshit. And I, I, this is exactly why I, I play sports. So I don't have to deal with this stuff. I think <laughs> other athletes, there's a, a frustration. How come more people don't know me? But again, I, I think, um, you know, I mean, the, everything always falls on the USTA. I mean, everybody always sort of lo- looks to them and they can only do so. But I do think it's probably a good discussion to have. How do we sort of reassess the tennis architecture? How do we try and rethink some processes where if I want to know about Taylor Townsend or if, if I want to know, I mean, pick your, you know, any of any of the hundreds of names on the computer, where can I go to learn more about the story? How does the USTA help tell the story of these young Americans? Because, I mean, the other thing about tennis is, I feel like once you get to know the athletes, they're great. I mean, one of the reasons I love covering this sport, and it starts with Federer Nadal, but it's just, I mean, pick a name out of a draw sheet. And it's really, by by and large, these are like lovely, cool people. And everyone's story should get told. Um, Some of this falls on the players, but I also think sort of structurally there ought to be a way – that the casual fan can watch you play at a tournament or see, you know, I, Chris Eubanks comes through my town to play the $50,000 challenger. I'd like to know more about him. I, I don't know what right now, what do you do if, if you're in that position? I mean, if it's the NBA, I know what I would do. If, if it's a casual tennis fan, you follow him on Twitter, but there's nothing structurally where I can develop more of a fan connection with a player. I like, outside of following him on Twitter and Instagram. It's interesting you bring up Taylor Townsend, who was this week's behind the racket. Uh, I believe, what was your your number 100, Noah? Is that correct? That was number 100, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it, it's a great point, though, though, John. And um, something that we've been talking about a lot on a podcast lately, the, the two of us, is just the, the organizational structure. The idea of a union... Uh, and I know that's kind of a broad term um, for, for players of this sport... There's been talk of that stoppage coming up at the Australian Open, which looks like it's not going to happen as as it's structured right now. How do we get to that point where players um, have some sort of structure themselves so that they feel that there's more of an opportunity to grow the sport themselves? Yeah, I mean, the the union issue is always going to be tough because they're independent contractors. Right. And you sort of you sort of need an employer that you can unionize from, right? So it's easy if it's a team sport, but Indian Wells will say, "Listen, I'm not I'm not an employer. I'm just ten, ten days a year people pass through and they have a chance to earn money, but I'm not the employer." I think 
if and, you know, and, and Djokovic has kind of taken the lead on this. I mean, I, I'm fully in favor of unionization. I mean, I think it's a little tricky, but I think there are ways it can be done. I think if you did it in Australia, where the labor laws are much different than there are in, in the United States, I think that's a way to do it. Um, the discussion with the union is usually tends to be about money and how we're divvying up gross revenues and how we're going to get more money out of the majors. But I think it's a much broader discussion about the things that we're talking about. Yeah. How are we structuring this so it's not so star driven? How are we structuring this so the discussion is really about what is the ideal number of people in this workforce? How are we going to create as many jobs as possible? And how are we going to let these players tell their stories and make money from ways other than hitting a ball across a net right now is so top heavy. I mean, Nadal, you know, great, great grandkids will never have to fly coach if they don't want. I mean, the the concentration now is so, so top heavy. And and obviously we we get that, but I don't think that's necessarily healthy in the, in the long term. for, you know, I, Roger Federer deserves every penny he gets. But to me, the real question is how does Dennis Kudla, make make more money and how do we distribute that without necessarily taking away from the top how do we distribute that more evenly do you have um how do i how do i ask this do you have an idea of how that works with an independent contractor group um is is it about you know fighting the atp from the men's side i mean is it is it about that that direction is that kind of how you would see it yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm eager to see. I mean, you, you guys know we're inside, we're in the weeds here. But, um, yeah. you know, um, the, this law firm in Toronto has been um, engaged by by Pospisil and by, by a number of these players. And, and the women's <laughs> side has had access to them. I, mean, I talked to Sloan Stevens a while ago. She, I mean, this, the, this seems to be a, a men and women's approach, which I think is really helpful, that tennis is great asset. Or what, one of them is men and women competing at the same time at the same place. And I think that's something that, tennis really needs to lean into and not um and and sort of not disregard some of this is about the tour structure some of this is about is is it right that there are three player seats and three tournament seats on a board does that does that make sense should these 250 events really have the same you know power at the at the bargaining table as never mind roger federer as you know sasha zero's a 20 million dollar athlete Is that a fair distribution? Um, and again, I mean, I think unionization is tough for individual contractors, but, you know, th- there are symphony orchestras that are unionized. I mean, there, there have been these cases where individual contractors, independent contractors have figured out a way to bargain collectively. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's a little tricky because the slams aren't the tours and sort of then we get really into the weeds of how, sort of structurally flawed tennis is. But I think the first step is for men and women to come together and say, we want to be a players association and sort of see where the chips fall after that. You know, a lot of my off court time has been spent with behind the racket, obviously. And Mike is a tremendous part of it now. Um, I guess from a journalistic point of view, this is almost a question. I almost should do this off camera, but (laughs) what why isn't it attractive enough or what am I missing out on that not everybody is jumping on board with because we are missing that connection between the fan and the player and that's what Mike and I are trying to do and my team is trying to do so, you know I'm, I guess I'm curious 
why other people wouldn't jump on board because I'm trying to get everybody involved. Mike and I are doing our part and it seems like people are having pushback where I am, you know, just a little, little part of the equation to try to bring that connection to the fan again. I'm just wondering from your side or your point of view, is there any reason why other federations or other organizations wouldn't jump on board yet? No, I mean, I think some of the, I think it's one of these things where, Part of it is just the, the fans aren't present, right? So you, you go to your Philadelphia Eagles fan and you can go to eight games a year and they practice nearby and the athletes live in your town and you, there's a you know a photo session at the mall where the backup <laughs> snapper appears. Tennis is very hard to follow. It's very hard for fans to forge relationships, um, especially with players who aren't the stars, where their schedules aren't set in stone. Um, and where you don't have these these interactions necessarily. I mean, if you showed up at Charlottesville or you, you went to the Tiburon Challenger, it would be great. You'd never have access to athletes like this ever again. But I think part of it is just not enough fans are seeing these athletes face-to-face. Um, and I also think some of it is just if the athletes – I mean, I, I think sort of the, the relationships and sort of the, the contacts between journalists could could improve. They're always very friendly when they happen. But if someone reached out and said, hey, listen, here's an amazing story you might be interested in. Um, I'm doing X, Y, Z. Or you know, so some of these, I, I'd like to tell you about my mental health struggles. Um, I think a lot of the people that cover the sport would be very interested to hear that. Just that that connection doesn't necessarily exist the way it does when the you know Brooklyn Nets beat writer goes to practice every day. <laughs> yeah. Right. But, you know, you, you contact me. I'm happy to have a conversation. My, my DMs are always open. But it's different from every day you're going to practice and seeing the same athletes. So I think some of it is just structurally tennis is – it's a global sport. It's a sport on the move. There are no home games. I think those are things that sort of militate against coverage. I mean, I, I have a very pleasant relationship with certain players, but I'll go – months and months and months without any contact you don't have that when you're the beat writer for the golden state warriors and just an fyi i'm pretty sure mike you have an autograph signing in a few days from now am i mistaken <laughs> yeah right before i leave tulsa i'm sure there will be two people at the airport <laughs> um john tennis channel uh has done a, a big big effort over the last couple of years to really increase coverage of challenger level events itf events um, it's been really important for us to, to see that, um, we're part of the tennis channel podcast network. You're obviously part of the tennis channel as well. What is the general viewpoint of challengers, you know, from a media perspective, um, in, in terms of what they, what they bring to the sport, um, what type of coverage they should receive and, and how important or not important the players are, especially from a tennis channel perspective. Um, that's interesting. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm a little reluctant to, to speak for tennis channel sure. institutionally and i think i you know i think tennis channel sees a real opportunity though in in a lot of spaces and you know t- tennis channel sort of has a bit of a challenger player mentality itself you know it did not have the resources of espn it does not have you know the netflix budget for original content but it sort of plugs and grinds and is in a very nice place right right now i think um but no, I mean, I, I think Tennis Channel sees this as, uh, you know, these, these are the comedy clubs where, you know, whatever. These are the jazz. This is where Lizzo performs before she blows up. I mean, I think <laughs> a part of it is like it's, it's content, it's ours, it's still very high quality tennis. But I think a lot of it also is this is catch a rising star. And these, these players who, you know, 
I, I would tell a story about you know Medvedev when he had that unfortunate match against Donald Young. Yep. You guys remember where that match was? Of course, Savannah. Savannah. Right. Savannah. So yeah, three years ago, this guy's playing the backcourts of Savannah, and the only reason we know about this match is because of this this regrettable uh, on-court incident. But you know, three years later, the guy's playing in the U.S. Open final. So I, I think there's a lot of these guys. It, it's not you know it, it, it's not uh, minor league baseball where most of these guys will never appear in the show. It's this is one slight, slight, slight level down from playing, you know, the, the big time and main draws of slams. And these players in a very short amount of time may well be in, in the top 10. So, so catch them while you can. Well, before we let you go, cause we're just at about our, our 30 minutes. Um, we're all headed down to Australia within the next, I assume week, week and a half for you, John, is that about right? Yeah, I think I, I think I leave uh, the fifteenth. Okay, so yeah. we're we're all headed down within the next two weeks. Um, obviously, it, it's such an exciting time uh, heading to the first slam of the year. It's also there's a lot of empathy uh, from the players right now in in terms of what's going on with the wildfires. Um, the on top of it, the difficulty of of having to play in conditions that are not going to be ideal. It's you know that's obviously a lesser. Um, thought as opposed to what's happening to to people who are more affected by it. Um, h- how do you view what should and should not be done about the air quality um, when it comes to playing one of the big four events in our sport? Oh man, uh, that's a great question. I mean, I think I think that was that was really well phrased, and I think we all need kind of this blanket disclaimer that we we realize it's a luxury to be talking about tennis and best of three versus best of five when half a billion animals have died and you know dozens of people have lost their lives right. um i i think to, to me you're never going to win the, the the optics argument there'll always be a point on the other side right so someone will say it's it's obscene to drink your fancy drinks and sit there watching tennis while a country burns and someone else will say no 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 it's important that we have this and a reminder that you know we, we can persist and you know, the, the same way USO tours will go to war zones, we need this to lift spirits. Mm. I mean, I think the optics argument is a bad one, but I think this air quality is crazy. And I don't know what, um, you know, two weeks from now is a lot of time, and I think a lot of this depends on the winds. So, you know, Melbourne may be fine, it may be not fine. I know that that Canberra event already moved, I believe. Right, that's correct. Um, I think they've got to do, I mean, they, they have to come up with some sort of, objective index and if the air quality gets above x we need to stop play and um you know i again this is unprecedented and i don't think you cancel the event but i do think you really need to figure out a again i mean i think i think if you do this on judgment calls it's 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 a bad idea i think you need some objective measures for is this air quality okay? Mostly for the players, but yeah. I would also say for, for I wouldn't want to be a ball kid. And um, I mean, apparently, Canberra has has the dirtiest air in the world right now. Right. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be a fan. I wouldn't want to be a, a ball kid or, or a line judge. Um, so I I mean I think we're all kind of going down there hoping for the best and hoping you know it's again it's two weeks away, but this is something that tennis and all sports are really going to have to deal with. And, um, you know, maybe the answer is, you know, there, there are a finite number of indoor courts, too. So it doesn't saying we've got three covered stadiums doesn't do much good. Um, I think you've got to come up with some sort of objective standard. But I also think this is something that 
you know, this isn't a fluke. I mean, uh, I, I don't know too many people that still think climate change is a hoax, but this is something really all sports are going to have to contend with going forward. So I, I think that these are kind of important uh, precedent setters also. I mean, this- you guys, I don't know, you guys tell me. I mean, Noah's the one that's going to be out there, but I'm – I have the luxury of being in air conditioning. Well, we, we have <laughs> this we, is yeah, this is not our first go around. Yeah, because back in, in California, yeah, Fairfield um, had a wildfire that was about five miles away. Um, uh, and we're waking up with yeah. ash coming down and it's it was a and they had masks and we were looking at the air index. That was the first time actually looking at air index and finding out it is twice as bad as Shanghai right now at the moment and they're keeping ball boys on the court and there's just no rule set in place there's no course of action and we're like what do we do from here how is this okay for players and of course it's a challenger it's not a slam so we're talking there is no profit this is solely this tournament there's no profits you know on the line right now for a full country and we're like wait, what are we doing here? <laughs> like the doctor is running around screaming, I, I can't even be a part of this because it is it is against my everything I've worked for to be a part of this situation right now. And it's uh, so this is definitely not our first go around. I'm curious to see. Of course, you know, we know four seasons in a day in Melbourne. This can all switch in two weeks. But, um, you know, it's it's really a horrendous situation right now. And we, we hope to see some improvement. How about Best of three in week one, switch back to best of five in the second week when you have indoor courts. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then do that forever. I don't know. <laughs> well, John, um, I, I, I should say this is actually kind of special for me. I When, when I first interacted with you, I was uh, a, a news director for a very small top 40 radio station back in Champaign, Illinois. Uh, I, I had a Sunday morning. The only thing I controlled was a Sunday morning public affairs show that was supposed to be about public affairs of Champaign-Urbana. But since my boss didn't listen, I just did whatever I wanted to. Uh, and you were <laughs> nice enough to, to join me to talk, I believe, it was about your, your book about Roddick and Federer, their, their epic final at Wimbledon. And that was the first time I got to talk to you. So now to, to have you on the podcast, it's, it's, a, it's a special moment for me, kind of this, this idea oh. of full circle. So I really appreciate your time, and I know Noah does as well. No, yes, we... thank, uh, thank you guys for everything you do for the sport. Well, Noah, certainly um, a lot of us are, are hoping that everything goes well for you in, Ar- in Ann Arbor. Um, let me just tell you, as, as, as a University of Illinois guy myself, uh, there were actually T-shirts that you would wear in Champaign that said, Ann Arbor is a hooer. That was just that, kinda, need, that needed a moment of silence. That, yep, that, we're just going to leave that there. That was the college <laughs> joke. Was that Ann Arbor was a <laughs> oh what a, what a, what a time to be alive back then, wasn't yeah, it, Mike? Back in the back in the early thirties, <laughs> um, <laughs> we were coming out of the depression. But damn it, Ann Arbor was still a whore. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I'm I'm just hopeful that everything goes well with your arm. Uh, win or lose, first couple of matches, just as long as you feel comfortable. Um, and, and then, you know, you get to come join me in Melbourne, and maybe we'll record a couple of podcasts uh, while we're down there. Yeah, and I know a lot of people, you know, get teary-eyed when we're nice to each other, but I actually am excited to see you in Australia. I think a lot of good work is going to be started in 2020. I think a lot of people are excited to see what we can do. Yeah. We have a lot of things on the horizon, but, you know, you know, with behind the racket, with you being in a tremendous um, 
tremendous involvement in it i think you know there's gonna be a lot of cool things and australia is the place to do it obviously a lot of things a lot of people are being affected right now by the wildfires um but you know we're gonna do our part and hopefully bring some awareness to not only australia but to the sport of tennis so i'm excited for a lot of things to come the show might be over but the conversation isn't Join us on social media at NoRuben33 and at MikeCTennis. We want to hear your opinions and stories behind the racket. Expect new episodes every Monday or Tuesday. And don't forget to leave us ratings on iTunes. It really helps us expand and reach more listeners as we take you behind the racket on the Coffee Cast with Patient and Ruben.